Beautiful singing this morning. If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Romans 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6, which really have that as kind of a secondary theme. We need to kind of get along with each other and purpose to get along with each other, which is a very Christ-like thing to do. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 today as we continue on through this journey through Romans. Now, beginning at verse 1, you'll notice in verse 15, it begins with that conjunction now, which now connects us to the preceding context about the gray area issues and not judging each other over gray areas and not condemning each other on those issues. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just to please ourselves, each of us. I want you to notice that, each of us. So nobody gets off the hook here. There are no exemptions. If you're a strong believer or a weak believer, this includes all of us. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification, for even Christ. And by the way, it's the Christ. So it's talking about even the Messiah did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Let me just pause here and say that little statement right there is concrete proof that the church has a responsibility to carefully crawl through the written scriptures, including Old Testament books. Notice what is said in that verse. Whatever is written in earlier time was written for our instruction. So that gives us the mandate as a church to carefully crawl through every book of the Bible, word by word, not leapfrogging around, but carefully go through everything that's been written in the scriptures. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the inspired scriptures this morning and the exposition later. Will you join with me please in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee today, the great and glorious and gracious and sovereign God, to say thank you for who you are and for all you've done, for all you're doing. We see in this very text that the responsibility we have is to try to emulate Jesus Christ, who is our only link to you, quite frankly. Thank you so much for your precious son, for sending him. Thank you for what he did in our behalf. And it's very clear, Lord, from this passage that you want us to become a reflection and mirror of him and a reflection and mirror of your grace. So we pray, Lord, that we will do our best to carefully crawl through these books of the Bible that you've inspired in your precious word. We need your help to do that. We need your spirit to work in us so that the heavenly overtakes the earthly. We need wisdom, Lord, so that we can conduct ourselves in a way that's impacting to other people. Help us to live our lives in such a way that we help others and influence others for you. Grant us perseverance and encouragement and unity. And I pray for our country, Lord, and we pray for our leaders. We ask that you would use your sovereign power to turn their minds to think in ways that you deem right 
Use your sovereignty to bring them to salvation. May you cause them to make choices that will enable us to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Lord, we pray for the sick of this church. We have many who fall under that category. We pray for your help and healing and comfort. We pray for the weak of the church. We pray you strengthen them. Pray for the strong of the church. We pray that you further develop them. And we pray for the lost that are connected to this church in any way. We pray you save them. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of work that goes into taking a children's choir like that and teaching them things. One of the things you never have to teach children, though, is how to be selfish. In fact, you don't have to teach any of us that, how to be selfish. It comes naturally. The me-first movement is a problem that affects a lot of people. People think, my views are better than yours. My plans are the best. Yours aren't. My words are the important things, not you. My ways are superior, not your ways. That kind of thinking takes place now and then, even in the context of the church. And the truth of the matter is, people who are just interested in selfishly pleasing themselves are some of the most mean and miserable people you'll ever meet. Oh, they may be a believer in Jesus Christ, at least they say they are, but they're not spiritual because they're too self-centered. And you can't have a self-centered individual who's totally selfish, who's ever going to be in a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Many years ago, a pastor friend of mine in Maine asked if I would go do a series on the book of Proverbs. We had services Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, and three services on Sunday. And while I was there, we went for a drive one day to see places where Jonathan Edwards had preached in the great revival fields of the 1700s. He knew of some of those specific spots and fields where Edwards has preached, so we went for a drive to see him. And as we looked at some of those places, I noticed that in most of those areas, there was an old church standing. It was kind of dilapidated. It didn't look like it had been cared for. In fact, a lot of the churches almost seemed to be in ruins, not even freshly painted. So I asked my pastor friend, what happened to these churches that were built years ago that sprang up from the revival area? He said most of them just had no one that really taught them the scriptures, so the church sprang up for a while. You had a bunch of new, weak believers. No one was strong. People would get disillusioned. They'd get in arguments, and they weren't taught the truth, and so it just, they ran down. They ran down. When any of us comes to faith in Christ, we need someone who's mature to take the Word of God and help guide us so that we can have an accurate understanding as to what it means. You don't get from infant level to mature level just by osmosis. A weak believer needs a strong believer around them to help them grow. And there's a great illustration of this in the scriptures in the life of Priscilla and Aquila, whom Paul will name later in the 16th chapter of the book of Romans. Aquila and Priscilla spent a great deal of time in Corinth learning from the apostle Paul. He taught them doctrine. He taught them things pertaining to God and the grace age. And when Paul left Corinth, they traveled with him across the Aegean Sea into Ephesus. And then Paul left them there when he went on to Galatia. By that time, Aquila and Priscilla were well-grounded in their faith and doctrine because they had been personally taught that by the Apostle Paul. Well, there was a traveling evangelist. His name was Apollos, powerful speaker. 
He came into Ephesus, and he started boldly preaching and teaching, but he was weak in his understanding of doctrine. He wasn't mature. He started getting all confused about baptism. He thought that was somehow connected to salvation. So we learn in the book of Acts chapter 18 that Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and taught him the truth. What you had happening there is you had two strong believers who knew truth, taking that weak one kind of under their wing and ultimately presenting to him truth so that all of them could be God-glorifying. That's what Paul was after in this church of Rome. That's what God's after in this church. What Paul says is a strong believer should have a mindset that builds up and puts up with a weak believer and tries to lift the burdens off them so that all believers may end up glorifying God. Now, the verses in this text are addressed to the strong believer, and Paul uses himself by the use of the pronoun we. So Paul is putting himself in the category of being a strong believer. These believers in Rome were well-grounded and well-taught in God's grace and in God's doctrine. And what Paul wanted these strong believers to understand is, look, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to those weak, over-scrupulous believers who are weak in their faith, they need you to take care of them. They need you to help them along. Now let's remember the strong believer is the one who knows about the liberty that he has in Jesus Christ. He's not hung up on rules and codes and man-made traditions. He's not hung up on all of the scruples that the weak believer views as being something significant. The weak believer, on the other hand, they're thinking in terms of their rules and regulations and scruples in the gray areas, and they somehow have convinced themselves that makes them more spiritual. The problem with the weak believer is that he thinks he's strong when in fact he's weak. And what Paul says is, you strong people in the faith, you need to put up with these people to help them get out of that. And as we approach this passage, I want to point out that nowhere does it say the strong believer has to agree with the weak believer. In fact, we shouldn't agree with the weak believer. The strong believer should never agree with the weak believer. But it also does not say that the strong believer should encourage the weak believer to continue in their weak state. In fact, part of getting them out of their weakened state is to present them with the truth. What this text says is a strong believer is to not just write off the weak believer. The strong believer is to have a ministry to the weak believer. Try to help them along. Try to encourage them. Try to get them to move in the right ways of the word of God. The strong believer has a God-ordained responsibility to minister to the weak believer in the context of the local church and in the context of life. Strong believers have no right to allow their convictions on gray areas to be disrespectful to weak believers. We ought to try and do our best to help our brothers and sisters in Christ develop. That's what Paul wanted when he penned these verses. Now you can look at this text because it simply comes down to two questions. What should you do and why should you do it? Question number one, what are the responsibilities that a strong believer has to the weak believer versus one to two? Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Now, this is something that you can personally count on in your own life. Most sins that will ever occur in our own lives will be because we want to pursue self-gratification. Most sins that 
any believer will ever get involved in will be because you want to gratify yourself. You're not interested in how it affects other people. You're not interested in what it does to other people. Most sins that people get into are because of self-gratification. And if your whole life is about what pleases you, if that's your goal, to just gratify yourself, and you're going to live your life with that as your goal, you'll end up pathetic and miserable. It won't matter where you live. You could move to Timbuktu. I don't even know if there's a real place, Timbuktu. I don't know. But you could move there. You could have anything that you want. You could do anything that you want. You're never going to be happy because you are focused on you. God never saved a believer so that he could just invest his life in self-gratification. We need each other. We need to fellowship with each other. We need to grow together. And there are three stated responsibilities or assignments that are given in this context to the strong believer. Assignment number one, the strong believer should bear the weaknesses of the weak believer. That's what he says. Verse one. The strong believer... And I don't necessarily like this, but it's just the way it is. It has to kind of lead the way in resolving the conflicts. I hate conflicts. But what this challenges a strong believer to do is you need to take a frontline approach to resolving them. And the assumption is the strong believer is in a position to use strength to help do this. The strong believer has to bear with the crazy views and the insecurities and the faulty theology of the weak believer. And the word bear means more than just tolerate. It's not you just have to tolerate them. The word bear means we have to try to move things so it'll lift the burden off them. It means that what we'll try to do as a strong believer is with our own hands do what we can to get them out of that condition. So the idea here is that we're just putting up with people because they're weak we try to use our strength to help them get out of the weak condition. And when Paul says that the strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, he uses an interesting word there when he calls them weak, because he's basically saying these people are anemic. They're sickly. They're lacking in strength. They're feeble and frail. They aren't strong in their doctrine. They aren't strong in their faith. They're not strong in their spirituality. So we must, as strong people, never forget there are weak people. There are weak people. And God may send them into our world, into our spheres, so that we can help them get out of that condition. Now, one of the things that the strong believer must bear is the fact that the weak believer is the one who thinks he's strong. I mean, he actually has convinced himself or herself that they're really strong, when in fact, doctrinally and spiritually speaking, they're feeble. The strong believer has a responsibility to try and help the weak believer become strong by lifting them out of their weakened state, which means you're going to have to try to get next to them and communicate truth to them. And you don't just tolerate them, just say, ah, that's them. Let's just tolerate them because to get involved in this is a hassle. What we're talking here is about an active toleration that says, you know what, I need to help them get out of this weak state and help them grow in grace. Weak people are sick. They're sick. They're feeble. They don't see themselves that way. But weak people are sick and they need help to become strong. They're weak in doctrine. They're weak in their faith. They don't know what to believe. The strong people, the strong believers must do what they can to bring them out of that state. 
This kind of thinking, we who are strong should bear the weaknesses of those without strength, is just totally foreign to a philosophy that says, you look out for you. You look out for number one. Because what this text is saying is we have a responsibility to think through and look out for the spiritual welfare of others. And there are two guiding principles that can help a weak believer grow, that we can help them along life's path, that we've already pointed them out as we came through the 14th chapter, that a strong believer can do. First of all, he can give up some temporary immediate liberty to please the weaker one rather than self. He already talked about that. We discussed that last time we were together. If you're in the presence of a weaker believer, you may forfeit a liberty that you have to just try to help them grow. But also, one of the other rules that you would help them get out of this is you don't leave them in a thinking where they think their weakness is correct. I mean, you have to tell them, look, you're struggling here, but you can come out of this and you need to grow. You need to understand this principle. So the strong believer is not just to endure the nonsense of a weak believer, but do what he or she can to take that weak believer out of that weakened condition. And the way that a strong believer does this is by patiently enduring, well, accurately and lovingly communicating truth. You don't want them staying in the weak state. You want them to get out of it. So that's assignment number one. We have to bear the weaknesses of those that are weak. Now the second assignment is the strong believer should not just live to please himself. Man. The end of verse one. Not just please ourselves. Do you know how many marriage problems, how many family problems, how many political problems, how many church problems could be solved if this principle were applied? This will be the biggest struggle you'll ever have with yourself. The biggest struggle that we will have with ourselves as a believer is that we will desire to live life in a way that pleases myself. That will be the biggest struggle you'll ever face. And if you choose to live your life that way, I mean, if that's what you're after, you want to live your life pleasing yourself, you'll end up sad, miserable, you'll end up depressed, you won't have fellowship with God, I didn't say you wouldn't have a relationship with God. You won't have real fellowship with God. And you won't make any positive difference in the life of anybody else. You'll end up a cynic, negative, that doesn't do much at all for the glory of God. So Paul says, look, you don't just live your life to please you. Paul knew the tendency that a strong believer has. The tendency a strong believer has is to say, you know what, I'm not fooling around with weaker people. I don't have the time and I don't have the inclination. So when a strong believer gets connected to a weak believer, their tendency can be to avoid them, let them go, get rid of them, argue with them, demean them, look down at them. The strong believer has a tendency to say, I don't need the hassle of having to waste my time with a weak believer, so I'll just write them off and cut them out of my life. He can go down the road and go somewhere else. That would please the strong believer. Paul says that's not what pleases God. Paul says what pleases God is 
in the grace age when a strong believer does what he can to help meet the needs of that weak believer to try to get them out of their state, out of their condition. Charles Hodge, the professor of biblical languages at Princeton Theological Seminary back in the 1800s, said the idea here is the strong believer must not do what he has the right to do. God does not grant us freedom and liberty just so we can please ourselves. Although there's nothing wrong with enjoying life and having things that please you. That's all part of life. But our liberty is also given to us in a context where we can minister to other people. And if pleasing ourselves is the primary motive for our existence, we're not going to reflect the grace of God. If you're about pleasing you, you'll probably end up lonely and miserable as a believer because God never intended you to live like that. In fact, when Jesus was here, in John 13, he said the key to happiness comes when you're washing the feet of other people. Happiness comes if you do this. Blessed are you. Happiness comes if you do this. And he got done serving his own disciples and washing their feet. So believers who are only focused on themselves are usually miserable people. They have no joy. They have no impact. They're just, quite honestly, pathetic. So Paul said, don't get in a frame of mind where you think that life is about just pleasing you. The third assignment is we have a responsibility to do what's good to please a neighbor. Verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. That word edification is the idea of you're building up somebody. It's a lot easier to tear them down than it is to build them up. Now, we're not to be just a bunch of people pleasers who try to do anything or agree with anything just so they'll like us. That's not it. In fact, the noun neighbor has an article, the, before it, which would seem to suggest these are weak believers in the church, people that you know, people that perhaps are in your little circle. They have a relationship with you. You understand they're in a weak state. It's someone near you, someone that you spot has this need. Verse 2 says, the reason why the strong believer should do what is good for the weaker believer and the weaker neighbors is because that's going to help them build them up in their faith. Strong believers have a responsibility to become strong and use their strength to help build up these people that need it. We have a responsibility to encourage each other, to edify each other. You know, it's a real encouragement when you just come to church. When people come to church, it's a real encouragement. I mean, when you come to church and you don't stay home watching live stream in your pajamas because you can. What do you think that does to this body that's here today? And we have live stream on there for people who are sick. We're glad that we have it. But let me just ask you a question on live stream and not all across the country. I'm talking about in the Kalamazoo area. You that are sitting there right now watching live stream in your pajamas because you don't have to get up and come fellowship with the people of God. What do you think God thinks of that? They don't even care about the family of God enough to get up, get in their car, and go to church. And here's Paul saying, you need to do what pleases your neighbor. You need to be doing what pleases him. So I'd ask you a question. Have you ever done that? Have you ever actually made a decision to use your liberty in some way that would help a weaker believer become strong? Have you ever done that? 
Have you ever made a determination, I'm going to do this, not because I necessarily feel like it, but I'm going to do this because this is what's going to help edify them and build them up. Unless you think that that's not what the Lord wants, Paul said in Philippians, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Now, this does not mean you just throw away all of your mature scruples and you give in to foolish whims of weak people or you just flatter their arrogance or laugh at their filth. That's not what it's talking about at all. This is talking about we should actually think through what we can do to help build up others in the things of the Lord when they're in our world. I've had tremendous doctors wherever we've lived all over the country. And we've lived in different places of the United States and I've had great doctors. I'll tell you how I got great doctor. An old nurse told me in our first church, and I never forgot this, I said, how do you pick a great doctor? Because if you talk to people, they'll all say their doctor's great. How do you know? She said, you find an old nurse who works in the hospital, and you ask an old nurse who's really a good doctor. You see them behind the scenes. You see what they're really like. She said, you do that. And so everywhere we went, that's exactly what I've done. So I've had some wonderful, wonderful doctors over the years. And she was the one who got this doctor that we ended up in Indiana back in the mid-80s, and I started having chest pains. And I thought I could be on the verge of having a heart attack or stroke. So I went to my doctor and explained to him what I thought the problem was. And he ran a bunch of tests, listening to my impressive medical opinions. He's the strong one, by the way. He's the one with medical knowledge. I have no medical knowledge. I'm weak. I have little medical knowledge. He analyzed the data. And when he got done, he said, there's nothing wrong with you. Go out and exercise start jogging. Now, suppose he would have agreed with me. Suppose he would have agreed with my naive medical opinions. Suppose he would have said, well, since you think that you're not feeding well, go to bed and take medicine. Or suppose he would have said, go on disability, lay around, don't do anything, don't get a job, don't do anything stressful. Had he said that, I would not be the magnificent specimen that I am today. (laughs) That doctor did what was good for me. That doctor told me the truth. He looked me in the eyes, he told me the truth. He was interested in building up my health. That's what he was interested in. He wasn't interested in appeasing my opinions. That is what our job is as a strong believer. Our job is to patiently put up with the weaknesses and opinions and viewpoints of people that are weaker, but we have a responsibility also to communicate to them the truth that can help them get better. That's our responsibility. And by the way, we're not doing this for vain glory. You know, some people help somebody and they want everybody to know it. That's not it. We're doing this because we really want to help this person grow. And what makes a believer strong is the word of God. Strong believers do what is good for weaker believers to help them grow. There's the what we are to do. Now the second question that's answered here is why are we to do that? Why are we to do it? 
And there are three reasons stated as to why we are to do it. Number one, because of Christ's example. Verse three, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now just think for a moment what the Lord Jesus Christ could have done if he wanted to please himself when he came here. He's God. God. He could have been the best-looking person to ever walk on this earth. I mean, he could have given himself the epitome of looks. He could have come across as the smartest genius to ever walk on the face of the earth, which in fact he was, but he didn't come across that way. He certainly didn't flaunt that. He could have surrounded himself with beautiful people. I mean, beautiful men, beautiful women. He could have had a whole arsenal of anyone he wanted there. Think what could have happened if he just said, you know what? I'm going to go down to that earth, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to please me. What would have happened if he would have come down here and decided, I don't want to suffer and die and take their sins. I don't want to take the wrath of God. So what would have happened if he got down here and said, forget these sinners. I'm out of here. I've seen the way they treat me. Forget the cross. Who needs it? Who needs them? Thank God Jesus Christ did not do what pleased him. And if ever there is a reason to try to do our best to minister to weaker believers, it is Jesus Christ, who was the most selfless person to ever walk on this earth. He's the strongest to ever be on this earth. He was God in the flesh. He humbled himself to minister to others. He could have demanded immediate conformity. He had the power to get the conformity. Yet he patiently put up with a world that, that hated him. And in verse 3, Paul quotes Psalm 69.9, which is a psalm of David. David was writing the psalm because he had been chased by Saul and his men. And the reason that Saul was chasing him is because David was God's anointed king. He was going to be the next king of Israel. Saul wanted to kill him. The negative things David experienced were in his life because he was right with God, and that's the personal Davidic interpretation of the psalm. But Paul brings out a deep prophetic point here when he applies that psalm to Jesus Christ, who came through the Davidic line. He says all of the reproaches that he suffered were due to the fact that he was here, he was standing for truth. He was the Son of God, and the truth of God caused the hardships for him everywhere he went. Think of what it would have been like to be the son of God and they call you a drunk. To be the son of God and they say, you know, he hangs out, he likes prostitutes. To be the son of God called satanic, demonic. He was the son of God, they called him an uneducated fool. Think what it would be like to be the son of God and let people spit in your face or punch you in the face or nail you to a cross. He had all the authority and power of God. He could have dropped those people dead like flies. Why didn't he do it? Why didn't he do it? He took all of that so he could take people like us who were sinful, ignorant, weak, depraved, 
and save us. In fact, Paul answered that question specifically in 2 Corinthians when he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul says, you want the ultimate example of one who ministered to weak, sinful people? Look at Jesus Christ. Man, you should too. You should minister to others too. The second reason is because that's what the written scriptures say. Verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. You hear a lot of talk today about losing your rights. We lost our rights the moment we came to Christ. We basically said, I'm turning my life over to him. He's in charge. The challenge here is you live your lives in a way that is conforming to the written scriptures. And I like something Dr. Warren Wearsby said about this. He said, when you look at what's written here and in the next verses, it becomes pretty obvious that the church must be seriously committed to two things. It must be committed to the word of God carefully teaching every book, every book, every verse. Because the text says that all of the things that were written, whatever was written, is written for our instruction. So he said the church must be very serious about going through those books of the Bible. And secondly, he said the church must be very serious about prayer. Prayer. We learn to have patience and cope with weaker brothers is going to take knowledge of the scriptures. It's going to take prayer. Great development. Grace development, godly development, comes from an accurate understanding of the word of God. Whatever has been written in earlier times has been written for our instruction. Do you get that? I'd go to these churches long before I got in this and got in a school that stressed this. I'd go to these churches and i go, how come they're not doing this? Why aren't they going through these books of the Bible? I don't get it. I mean, if they come up with a better system than just starting with verse 1 and going through the book and the way that God's revealed it? It doesn't make sense to me. It obviously doesn't make sense to Paul. He says here, you be serious about the written scriptures because that's what produces strength. Thirdly, because of God's glory. Paul's praying and asking God to grant this great maturity and growth of the people of God so they can glorify God. He actually breaks out in the prayer there, verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul realizes, look, in order for people to really become strong like this, they need a work of God to take place. This isn't something they're going to conjure up themselves. They need a work of God, and he prays, God, will you please allow us to glorify you? And there are five ingredients that he mentions there. To glorify God, God's people need to develop perseverance. They need to develop a staying power that'll cope with whatever's thrown at them. They will persevere for the Lord. Secondly, they need to develop an encouragement they need to be people who encourage each other in the things of God. Thirdly, they need to develop a unity, a harmony 
That's what's needed for God to do in the church. And then fourthly, they need to know about God the Father because it's interesting, he says, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God, which is referring to the Father, and then you need to know the identity of Jesus Christ and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, he's the Lord, he's Jesus, he's the Savior, he's Christ, he's the Messiah. So what Paul is basically saying here is if you want to end up a strong believer, you have to be serious-minded about understanding the written word of God, and you have to be serious-minded about asking God to develop you. Develop you. God has to grant the growth. God has to grant the unity. You can't conjure this up. And for a church to become strong, it's God who must enable it. But in order to actually have God do that, it all starts with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, I'll tell you, Wednesday nights, we've been doing a study of hell. It's as sober a study as you'll ever go through. I don't think people realize what hell is actually going to be like. It's scary business. And if you don't have Jesus Christ in your life, that's where you're headed. You drop off into eternity, that's where you, and you're never going to get out of it. You'll never get out of there once you're in it. The scriptures are pretty clear on that. So God has made an amazing provision in that Jesus Christ came to this earth. He didn't please himself in this. He was here to make it possible for people like us to have a relationship with God. And if you will believe in him, you will be saved. May we pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior right now in this moment, you may settle that by just inviting the Lord to come into your life to save you. Just do it where you sit. I'll ask all of us a question before we pray. Has your life been about just pleasing you or about pleasing God? Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you for the scriptures that you've given to us. Thank you for the patience that you have with us. We pray, Lord, that we would use our time wisely as we're here in this world, carefully going through these precious books that you've given to man. I pray we'd not leave out one jot or tittle from the study of the scriptures. I pray that we would have a faith that is strong. I pray the people of this church will be strong. But may we never forget the responsibility we have along life's path to help those that are weak. So give us a sensitivity to the work of the Spirit of God in these various situations that will come our way so that we can be a tremendous reflector of your grace for thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen.